So now, join with me in welcoming up our lead pastor, Van. He's going to give the message. Thanks, Nick. Hey, I love having Nick up here. Uh, I think he's a really highly gifted young man. And uh, in fact, yeah, isn't that true? Yeah. So I asked him to preach in two weeks. So in two weeks, Nick's going to bring the message, and I think it's going to be awesome. I, I can't wait. I can't wait. All right, so do you want to start with a video or some jokes? Better say jokes, because I don't have a video, okay? Okay. Okay, so there was this guy. He wasn't real bright, um, not a very good driver, but he's driving down the highway, uh, interstate, and he's just whipping in and out of traffic and cutting people off and just not paying attention. And he cut this one truck tr- trucker off two or three times. I don't know why he got a trucker, but that's part of the story. And so any truckers here, this is not disparaging your character in any way, shape, or form. But the trucker got frustrated, and he finally caught up with the guy and pulled him over. And he went and he pulled the guy out of his car and he drew a circle in the dirt. And he said, now you stand in that circle and if you get out of that circle, there's going to be trouble. And so he just really, you know, growled at the guy, put him in that circle. And then he took a baseball bat and started smashing the guy's car apart, smashing the windshield and the hood and the trunk and everything. But as he's doing that, he hears this guy giggling. The guy's just laughing and laughing and he turns around and says, what are you laughing about? I'm smashing your car to pieces here. And the guy said, I stepped out of the circle three times while you weren't looking. (laughs) (laughs) Told you he wasn't too bright. Okay, you heard about the guy that was walking down the street and there's a man sitting there and a dog lying at his feet. And the guy says, does your dog bite? The man says, nope. So he reached down to pet the dog, and the dog bit him in the hand. He said, I thought you told me your dog didn't bite. The guy says, that ain't my dog. <laughs> All right, how many of us here grew up in small towns? Okay, you, you might understand this joke better, but... There's a, a, a New York guy, a big business guy, and he's just tired of the city and he's wanting to break. And so he just jumps in his car one Sunday afternoon, just starts driving. And after several hours, finds himself just out in the country, remote country. And he comes to this little crossroads. There's a little, little country store there with a gas station out front and maybe six or eight houses around this crossroads. And uh, goes in, gets a bottle of pop, comes back out. And the owner's sitting there. Owner sits down, they sit down beside each other, and he just says, oh, it must be nice living out in the country like this. And the owner of the little store says, well, I wouldn't know. I've lived right here in town my whole life. (laughs) So, perspective, perspective is everything, isn't it? One more? Okay, one more. So this boy... He goes to his mom and says, Mom, where do people come from? And she says, well, honey, God created Adam and Eve. And then they had babies. And their babies grew up. And there were more children born and more and more and more until finally it comes all the way down to us. And he said, okay. And then he went to his dad and he said, Dad, 
where do people come from? And his dad said, well, honey, we used to be monkeys. And then slowly over thousands of years, we changed into people. And that's where people come from. And he went back to his mom and he said, mom, you lied to me. You said we came from Adam and Eve and dad said we came from monkeys. And the mother said, oh, no, honey, I didn't lie. Your dad was just talking about his side of the family. (laughs) Yeah, I like that one. I like that one. Okay. So we're starting this new series today, Who is Jesus? And it really flows with the, uh, the whole emphasis on identity, uh, identity revealed last weekend. How many of you were here? Did Nick already ask this? How many of you were here to hear Bob Hazlett and Robbie? Yeah, man, it was a powerful weekend. Um, then we're having eight weeks of Wednesday nights where we're teaching on identity and then having small group discussion and other, some worship and and just, just, we had a fantastic time. You know, come back, you know, c- come back if you came, and if you didn't, encourage you to come. If you register ahead, it helps with the groups. We can figure out what group you're going to be in ahead. But um, for these eight weeks, the message series is going to be "Who is Jesus?" on Sunday, and then the eight weeks on Wednesdays, we're asking the question, "Who are we?" And so that's that's kind of the the provocative question that stirs us into understanding identity, all right? So um, I had a whole message developed Friday. I had it all written on Jesus is a man of prayer. I was going to start with that. But then uh, it's a good message. I'm going to give it some point in time in the future. But then Friday night, Lori and I went to see a movie called Risen. Anybody here seen it? Powerful movie, wasn't it? Wow. I I was blown away at how... The, I mean, the fantastic acting, characters are appealing, storyline flows with biblical truth really, really well. And I came away from that movie thinking, I'm not going to do a message on prayer. I need to do a message directly answering the question, who is Jesus? And so that's what we're going to focus on today, okay? Who is Jesus? And um, the, the there's a passage that my mind went to, I, I prepared this message yesterday. So yesterday, as I was thinking through, there's a passage that really, that really stood out to me. And, and it has to do with uh, Jesus and the problems he had with the Pharisees and the other Jewish religious leaders. And uh, Jesus is a year and a half or so into his ministry. He's becoming very popular. A lot of people are looking at Jesus and thinking he might really be the Messiah. And so the Jewish leaders are hearing people talk like this. And they're hearing people say, well, maybe he is the Messiah. And so the Jewish leaders are wanting to put a a cap on this right away. And so in John 7, 32, here's what we read. said, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering about these, these things about him, about Jesus. He may be the Messiah. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. So they say, all right, let's just arrest him. So they send the soldiers to arrest him. And these soldiers get there. They're biding their time, waiting for the right moment to arrest Jesus. And as they're waiting, they listen to Jesus' teaching. And they, they hear him explaining who he is and where he came from and what his purpose is. And actually, they witness a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees, the very ones who sent him there to arrest Jesus. 
And when it comes right down to it, they all kind of walk away stunned. They don't know what to do. And so they just leave. And when they come back to the Pharisees, here's what they said. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, because Jesus is not with them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. Think about that. Just that no one ever spoke like this man. That's not really a reason for why they didn't bring them. That's just why they're stunned. It's why they're dumbfounded. It's why, what were we going to do? No one's ever spoken like this man. And I read that, and it it just stirs something in my heart that I'm saying, man, that alone makes me want to spend the rest of my life getting to know Jesus better. That alone makes me want to do everything I have to do to understand more clearly and more fully who Jesus is. And I want to say, if I didn't know Jesus yet, if, you know, if, I'm just, if I'm just maybe exploring, and I hear a statement like that, and I read that story, that, that, that's the impetus for me to spend the rest of my life, if I have to, figuring out who is Jesus. Who is Jesus? And if he is alive today, like they say, can I know him and how can I know him? So I, we're going to go on this quest these, today and next, next few weeks to really understand more who Jesus is and, and to really try to grasp the significance of who he is for our lives today. So our quest today begins in John's gospel, John chapter 1 and verse 1. Before we read it, let's pray, okay? Let's just, let's just uh, once again invite the Holy Spirit's presence here. Hmm. Father God, uh, we come and all of us together right now, we turn our hearts to you and, and we say we know you are good. Thank you for your goodness and your love for us. Lord Jesus, uh, we want to know you. We want to know who you are. And we want, to, we want to walk with you and experience you in life. Holy Spirit, you are God present with us. And you are the one who releases truth to our minds. You open us our hearts and minds to understand revelation and, and to get it. And so, Holy Spirit, teach us today. Show us things we've never, never thought of before, we've never embraced before. And give us hearts of faith to embrace and to walk in newness and freshness of understanding who Jesus is. Amen. Okay. So John 1.1, 1, 1, what's it say? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Let's just stop right there, okay? Uh, isn't that a nice poetic statement? You know, you could take that into just about any college uh, poetry class and you could write it on the board, and you could, you could spend a class discussing that, the, the word flow, and the beauty of the language, and, and all the different ways it could be interpreted. What does it mean? The word. Who is this word? How, how was the word with God, and at the same time, was God? And it, it would, uh, it, it, you might gain some significance that way, but to really understand it and really grasp it, you have to look at it through the eyes of faith. And we really need the Holy Spirit to show us because it's more than a statement of poetry. It's a foundational truth that brings us into relationship with God. And, and it's explained later in John 1.14 when it says this, 
the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And so that's very clear that this word is actually Jesus, that the word who was with God and was God is a person and he became a human being. He dwelt among us and we saw his glory. We saw the glory of the father through, through his life. So it's clear the word is Jesus, but why do they describe Jesus as a word? And I, I think there's something fairly clear there that we use words to do what? To communicate, to express ideas to each other, to express thoughts to each other, to ask questions. But when you use the word, word as the word, then it has a little bit different connotation. It has the connotation of an overall message, an overall expression of something like, um, a a good friend that has been, uh, uh, going through some struggles and, and I, and I say, well, what's the word on how things are happening in your life? What I'm looking for is a message about what's happening in their life. And so when it says he is the word, it's referring to the message that God wants to give to humanity. And so Jesus is the message that God wants to give to humanity. He is the communication that God wants to, wants to hold out to us and to invite us into. And so he is the full communication of God's being, of God's heart, of God's goodness, and of God's love. So understanding that, that Jesus is the word. Let's go back and read these first five verses of John 1. And and we're going to see some other astounding things about who Jesus is. So the very first verse, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, but the word also was God. And so Jesus is deity. He is deity. He's not just a good man. He's not just an, an exalted angel. He is God himself. He is deity. When we say he is the son of God, we mean by that he's made up of the very same stuff that God is made up of. He's made in his nature. He is the same in essence in his nature as God. And so he's deity. Second phrase, second verse. He was in the beginning with God. Now, anytime it talks about the beginning It doesn't mean that God had a beginning. It's just saying, look, as far back as you human beings can think, think that far back, Jesus existed then with God, okay? And so what he's saying here is Jesus is an eternal being. He has always existed. He never, there was never a moment in time in which he came into existence. He has always existed. Verse three, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. All right, look at the sun, the stars, the moon. Jesus made it all. You you look at all the beauty on this planet. Jesus was the instrument of God's creation. He's the creator. He was involved in all of that. And so nothing was made that wasn't made through him. In verse four, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So Jesus is the source of life. You're here breathing right now, right? How many of us are breathing? How many of us are thinking right now? How many of us are thinking what I'm talking about right now? (laughs) 
Okay, look, you know, I, people have asked me, does it bother you if someone goes to sleep during your message? I say, not in the slightest. I have slept through some great messages. <laughs> Man, I've been sitting out there, and if you, just, if you didn't sleep well last night, there's hardly a message that's good enough to keep you awake. <laughs> but I think this message is very, very important. And if you don't get it all today, then please go back and listen to it in the podcast later, okay? But you're awake, you're alive, you're breathing, living because of Jesus. He gave you breath. He gave you life. It's his life that is extended to us. And then finally, it ends with this. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And so Jesus is the light shining in darkness. So I'm saying it this way. He is the hope in a dark world. Okay, he is the hope of a dark world and he will be victorious because it says darkness cannot overcome his light. So he is the victor. You know, darkness, darkness can't resist light. Did you know that? That's why you walk into a dark room, flip a flashlight on. Does the darkness fight back? Does the beam from your flashlight kind of like as it get pushed back into the flashlight and, and then you will it to go out? No, it's not how it works. Darkness, dis- darkness is dispelled by light. Jesus is light. He came into the world. He brought light into the world. And darkness cannot resist it. Darkness cannot overcome it. He is the victor. And he's ultimately going to be the victor. And as we're going to see through this uh, message today, we get to be part of that with him. Now... The next passage in John 1, which does so much to describe Jesus, is about Moses. And it compares Jesus and Moses. And that's really fitting because the Jewish audience that Jesus came to, uh, Moses would have been the most significant and important figure in Judaism. Because Moses was the founder of the nation. He led the people when they were, they were captive in Egypt for, for several hundred years. And then they got out of Egypt and it was Moses that led them through the wilderness and prepared them to be a nation all, all their own. And so it says this about this. It says, for from his fullness, meaning Christ's fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Okay, stop there. His fullness we've received, grace upon grace. What that means is uh, grace against grace is what it's saying. And what what it means is that there's no break in the line of the flow of God's grace to us. You know, if we think of grace as packages, then, you know, you get a package Monday and you don't get another one until Thursday. You don't get another one until next, next week. Uh, if, if you think of grace in packages, which we shouldn't think of it that way, but for the sake of this illustration, you have to think of it as this. The UPS guy, the post, your, your postal deliverer comes, hands you a pass, package. You close the door, doorbell rings. Same guy, another package. Close the door, doorbell rings. Another package. And then you look out there and you see guys in brown uh, lined up out into the street and down the block because God's grace comes one right behind the other. It's rubbing up against each other is what this means, right against each other. And so the better illustration would be to think of a, a fire hose and it's saying like the tank never runs out, the stream never breaks, there's never any lapse in the water flow. It's continual God's grace, grace after grace. 
And so you and I get to get in on that, don't we? That's pretty cool stuff. But he goes on to say this. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So law came through Moses. Grace and truth through Jesus. Now, what, what does he mean by that? Well, when he says the law came through Moses, when uh, Moses lived, he lived at the period of time when the people of Israel were becoming a nation. And so God gave them his laws, which were to govern their nation because it was his nation. They were his people. Okay, so the law comes through Moses. And not, not just the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments certainly, but more than that, the whole law to govern the nation of Israel came through Moses. And the law was good, and it was pure, and it was right, and it was righteous. And yet, it couldn't completely reveal who God was to us, because the law couldn't change us. And the problem wasn't external, whether or not we had the right rules to live by, and if we just lived by those right rules, then we'd be okay. The problem is internal, that the heart needs to be changed. An external law cannot change the heart. And so the law came in through Moses, and it, it showed us something of God's holiness and, and something of God's uh, righteousness. And it showed us that we can't live up to holiness and righteousness, but it did not reveal the fullness of who God is to us. And Jesus came and he brought grace and truth. Now, God's grace existed before Jesus. Uh, it was his grace that, well, this simple fact, the Old Testament law said, if you do this, you'll be blessed. If you don't, you're going to be cursed. And yet God blessed people, even though none of them fulfilled the law. None of them fulfilled the law, and yet God's still blessed because God's gracious, and God's good, and God's merciful. And his grace was revealed even then, but to see it clearly, you have to look at the life of Jesus. And that's why it says in verse 18, no one has seen God, the, no one has seen God. the only God who is in the Father's side, he has made him known. So he's saying this, no one with the eyes has actually seen God. The way you see God is by looking at Jesus. Jesus revealed God. Jesus is the revelation of who God is. If we want to know what God's like, look at Jesus. If you want to understand God, look at Jesus. If you wonder if God did something or didn't do something, look at Jesus and ask yourself, would he do that or not? Now, this, this has a lot of application to our lives because it, it really means that Jesus is the lens through which we look at life. I look at Jesus. And I look through Jesus at life. Um, for, for some people, I mean, this is really practical. This really has an impact on us because if, if I've gone through a hardship, let's say I've, I've had a disease in my family and sickness, and I'm wondering, God, did you allow this? Why did you allow this? Or maybe I'm even going to the point of saying, well, God, you caused this. And somehow in a mystery, that's going to be good. I don't know how it's going to be good, but somehow you're going to make this horrible thing that's happening to me good. And so I, you know, I'd kind of like say, God, you you did this. And, and, uh, and I'm looking at it from that perspective. But if I look at it through the lens of Jesus, what I need to ask myself is, would Jesus do this to me? 
And then I just look at the Bible and I say, is there any place in the New Testament where Jesus laid hands on a person and gave them a disease? Any place. Any place where someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, I'm sick, heal me. And he said, this sickness is something I gave you and be happy and be thankful with it. And you just, there's a mystery behind it that you'll never understand. And so just embrace it. Jesus ever do that? No, he never did. And so if Jesus is the full revelation of God to man, if he is everything we need to know about God, then I can look at that sickness and I can say, this isn't from God. This isn't from God. I, you know, God's sovereignty, yes, that's, there's a mystery in God's sovereignty. But I know God's goodness and I know his love. And this isn't from God. And now, now in the same way, you can look at the Old Testament, and sometimes we look at the Old Testament, and there have been people who've actually developed a theology that God somehow matured over the years, or that God changed, or there were two gods, or let's just can the Old Testament entirely. Um, there was a heresy that did that. But you look at the Old Testament, and you see things you don't understand. There were acts of judgment. There were wars that happened that were horrible. And you look at that and you think, God, how could you do that? How could you be like that? And what, what we need to do is to look at that through the lens of Jesus and just say, I don't understand that, but Jesus, I know you are good. God, I know you are good. I, I, there's something I don't get there. I don't understand it, but you are good. And I trust you because I know you are good. Now, let me illustrate that. Um, Let's say I'm coming out of a restaurant, okay? And uh, I, I look across the street and I see Lori coming out of a restaurant and she's with another man. And as they walk out of the restaurant, they hug and kiss and then part company, okay? Now, what would, what would, what would uh, I mean, it would be very common for a guy to think what? Think, wow, I thought I knew her. I thought that I understood who she was, but I guess I don't. I guess, I guess she has betrayed me. Now, I guess, you know, there's something I, I missed. You could look at it that way, and that would, but here's, here's, here's how I would look at it. I would say, I've been married to this woman for 40 years. I know her heart. She is as faithful as anyone could ever be. And she is as truthful and honest as anyone could ever be. And I know she loves me. And so whatever I'm seeing right now, there has to be some other explanation for it. I don't quite get it. You know, may, maybe it's a long lost cousin she didn't know she had. And, and he just called her and, and, and they met for lunch and she tried to call me, but I was in a meeting and I didn't answer her call or whatever, you know, maybe that. Or maybe this is someone that as she was going up to the checkout counter, she bumped into someone who, from high school. And this guy always had a crush on her and they're talking. And when they come outside, he's so bold that he leans over and kisses her. And she walked away befuddled and frustrated and, and, and upset about the whole thing. Uh, so so there's, th there's some other explanation is what I'm saying. And how do I get there? It's because I know her. I know her. And so I look at some things that happen in life, even Old Testament stuff that I don't understand. And I say, I don't get that, but I know Jesus. 
Jesus, I know you. I know you're good. I know you're loving. I know you came to save the world and not to condemn the world. So there must be some other explanation for what I'm seeing there. I'm missing something. So I'm going to put that on hold. Someday when I get to heaven, if I still need an answer to that, I'll get it. Okay. But for right now, I'm going to put that on hold because I know God's good. Because who is the revelation of God to man? Jesus is. And so what you see in Jesus is what God is like. What that, look, we got to be reading the Bible. We got to be reading the New Testament. We got to be reading the Gospels, not just the Gospels, the whole New Testament, but we've got to be reading the Gospels and understanding what Jesus was like. I love to read the Old Testament, don't get me wrong. I read it all the time, but I read it through the lens of Jesus. I read it through the lens of the New Testament. And, and then I just get so much out of it reading it that way. But Jesus is the revelation of God to man. Now, <clears throat> we said Jesus is God and the full revelation of God to man. So if that's the case, you know, how can a man also be God? How can that be? What, I mean, what is up with that? That's crazy thinking. Uh, and, and yet it is what the Bible teaches. In, in Luke one thirty five, we find the answer to it. One thirty five, Luke. Angel comes to Mary. This is Mary, the mother of Jesus. And the, and, and the angel <clears throat> answered her. The, whole, she's, he, the angel says, you're going to have a baby. It's going to be the son of God. And she says, how can that be? I'm a virgin. And so the angel answers her and says this. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. So she doesn't lose her virginity to have this child. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, Mary was the mother, so it was a human egg and human DNA. Holy Spirit was the one who put life in that egg and stirred that egg. uh, Stirred it. I like scrambled eggs. <laughs> Not my best insight today, okay? Yeah. I'm just going to say it this way then, okay? Holy Spirit impregnated the egg somehow. Somehow. He put, he put life into that egg, and it was the life of God. It was God's son, Jesus. And so that's why it says here that a child will be born. So the baby was fully human, but he'll be called the son of God. So the baby was fully deity. Now you have to get this. Jesus was not 50% God and 50% man. If he had been that, then he would have been a third type of uh, creature that was neither God nor man. That's like Greek mythology. Jesus is far deeper than that. Jesus was fully God and fully man. And he was just one person. He wasn't two. It wasn't like he flipped back and forth. And, and, and No, he was one person, fully God and fully man. And because of that, well, we're going to see some of the because of that's here in a moment. But just a note, okay? Any of our Muslim friends... Someone might be here that has a background in Islam or is a practicing Muslim. Um, we Christians do not believe that God took on a, a, corp, a, 
corporate, corporeal, human flesh, flesh, right, got you. We don't believe that God like took on a human form and had sex with Mary. Okay, that's not what happened. That, that would be a gross distortion of God's goodness and holiness. And, uh, and so we don't believe that. We believe it was a, a pure, beautiful work of the Holy Spirit that brought this about. So um, Jesus, the eternal God, has become a human being. But why? Why? And to understand the why of that, I think we have to delve in, into a background in the Bible of covenant. So I want to take a moment just to talk about covenant with you, okay? Adam and Eve starts, starts in the garden. Adam and Eve, God placed them there and, and had sort of an unspoken covenant with them that they were there. He gave them the charge to multiply, to fill the earth with image bearers, fill the whole planet, to uh, subdue the planet, means bring it into order, and then to rule over it in God's, in God's place as God's representatives. It's kind of like... God gave them the, the keys to the car. He said, okay, you get the car. This is yours. I want you to take care of it. I want you to honor it. I want you to, to, to care for it. And so God gave Adam and Eve the earth. And when they sinned, it was more than a simple act of disobedience. What they did was they believed the father of lies instead of believing the father of truth. And when they did that, they shifted their allegiance from God as Lord to Satan as Lord. Now, that's more than just a simple act of sin that then brings judgment. They took what they had been given by God and they handed it over to God's enemy. The thing God had created and loved, including themselves. They broke faith with God and they entered into a relationship, a union, a unity with Satan as Lord of the earth. And so what that in effect did was put God on the outside. Now, God could have forced his way back and he could have powered his way back. And of course, he could have just obliterated Satan, but realize Adam and Eve have united themselves to Satan now. And God doesn't want to obliterate them. He could, have, he could have taken them back somehow, but he wants them to love him freely. He wants them to love him out of pure hearts. And their hearts, when they disobeyed, their hearts have been changed. And he wants, he wants their hearts to change back so they love him freely. And so God... In, pay, in incredible patience, you know, we talk about Jesus and the humility of Jesus becoming a human being, but the, the Trinitarian God, uh, if, I think we can say God is humble by part of his character and nature because he's so patient. Patience is an act of humility and God patiently waits. And, and there were people that interacted with God that believed in God through this season of time, but God patiently waits for the right moment. And when the right moment came, he found a man, a man named Abraham. And he came to Abraham and he said to Abraham, Abraham, I, I'm, going, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to use you to bless the whole earth. And you look at the stars, Abraham, your seed, your posterity is going to be more in number than the stars in the sky. 
Abraham, do you believe me? See, Adam and Eve didn't believe God. And so he says to Abraham, do you believe me? And Abraham said, I believe you, God. I believe you can do this, and I believe you will do this. And in that, God and Abraham formed a covenant. They came back, God and man came back into covenant, came back into unity. And what that did was to, in some respects, you could say he gives God a voice, puts God back in the boardroom again. And, and now God is re-engaged with humanity. But it's re-engagement with humanity around his purpose, which was to fill the world with image bearers. And so Abraham and God formed this covenant. And this covenant is something that God fulfills. And he blesses Abraham. And Abraham's out, out of his children come several million and they go through this rough period, hard period where they're slaves in Egypt and then they, they are, they're delivered from Egypt and they're out in the wilderness and God's taking them into the land that he had promised to their father Abraham. And now Moses is leading them and God enters into a new covenant with them. And this new covenant is the covenant of law. And in this new covenant, the standard, as I've said, is Obey and get blessed. Disobey and you're going you're gonna to have trouble. Obey and get blessed. And he gives this, this law to the whole nation of Israel. It was more than just the Ten Commandments, okay? It was the whole law of how the nation of Israel was to be governed. And so God gives them this. And in that, his moral law, it reveals what God's holiness is like, what his righteousness is like, and what God demands of any human being that would come into relationship with him what is necessary to come into relationship with him. And through this whole period of time, 2,000 years, there is never one person in that nation that fulfills the covenant of law. And you know, the covenant of law was written ultimately for Jesus. It was written for Jesus because he's the one that's going to fulfill it. He's the only one that ever fully obeyed it. So he's the only, ever, only one that ever fulfilled this law and therefore stood under the full blessing of God. But for all these years, they live under the covenant of law until Jesus comes. And Jesus lives his life perfectly, righteously, holy, and truly. And with the law as a backdrop to that, everybody can look at the life of Jesus and say his life lines up perfectly to the law. He's never sinned once. He's never faltered once. He's never failed once. And so Jesus comes then, and he himself becomes the covenant man. Because as God was united with Adam and Eve until they broke their union with him and united with Satan, and God came back into play by uniting with Abraham. And by that again, there were believers prior to that. But as far as God's plan for the world, Abraham was the one that God shared his plan with the world with. And Abraham entered into purposeful union with God. And so the Jesus now is the one who 
completely fulfills covenant by obeying this Old Testament covenant, but also because Jesus himself is the perfect union of man and God. Do you see that? Abraham and God formed a covenant which brought man and God back together in union. And now Jesus comes who is the union of God and man. Does that make sense? Okay, he comes, he is the union of God and man. And because he fulfilled the old covenant, he's in a position to establish a new covenant. Now, something we need to understand about in covenants, if you read through the book of Hebrews, um, tough reading, but if you read it slowly and really think it's great, fantastic book. But one of the places in there, it says no covenant can be ratified without the shedding of blood because there it says a covenant is like a will. It's like a will where the person who made the covenant has to die in order to pass the blessings on. And so if you form a covenant, but you want the blessings to flow now, like if you write a will and you want the blessings to begin to flow now, you have to symbolize that death in some way. And so when God and Abraham entered into covenant, there were several animals that were sacrificed and they had a process for covenant where you'd sacrifice the animals and split them in two and put one half on one side and one on the other. And, and so there was this, this, uh, this pathway lined with blood that then both members of the covenant would walk through. And it would indicate not only have we entered this covenant, but it comes into effect right now as symbolized by this blood. Neither one of us are going to die. They're a substitute for us, our death, which means the covenant goes into effect now. And with the Old Testament law, the covenant with Moses, there were animal sacrifices that were part of that, that brought it into effect. And now with Jesus, Jesus comes on the scene as the covenant man, as the one who has united man and God. And in Luke twenty two twenty, he says this. He says, this is the night before he dies, and Jesus is giving them communion. And, and he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So Jesus has fulfilled the covenant of law, and now he's establishing a new covenant and he's saying it is going to be sealed with my blood. And Jesus then the next day goes to the cross and he dies. And when he died there, yes, he died so we could be forgiven for our sins. So we could get into heaven someday. But listen, heaven is just the final destination. It's not the goal. Okay. Going to heaven is not the goal. It's just the final destination. God's goal is he created this planet to fill it with image bearers. And he still wants to do that. And that was his covenant with Abraham. And that's his covenant with Jesus, that he would give him the nations. And so Jesus dies on the cross for our sins, dies on the cross to, to break the power of darkness in the world. And Romans 5, 8 says God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then in Acts 2, 4, it says, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so Jesus sheds his blood, which ratifies the covenant and brings it into effect. And then he's resurrected from the dead, 
which means he is here. He is alive now so that we can come into union with him. And when a person accepts Christ, what happens is their union with Satan is broken. You know, we were all called sons of disobedience, the Bible says, that we all lived according to uh, the spirit of the power of the air. And that's how we lived our lives because we were born in sin and we're born into a sinful world. We're born with an allegiance to the prince of darkness. We may, we don't know that. It's not, it's not, we don't understand that, but we're born with that. Jesus came to break that. And when Jesus died on the cross, he broke it. And now we can come into union with him, into his covenant, into covenant with him. And when I open my heart to Christ, that's what happens. I enter into a new covenant relationship with Jesus. I am united with him. I experience his life. I experience his goodness. I experience his fullness in this world. And he, he, he doesn't just help us out with the effects of the fall by we get forgiven and we get to go to heaven when we die. He reverses the effects of the fall. In Romans, it says this, Romans 5, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. So not simply forgiven, but changed, made righteous, taken out of a covenant with with God's enemy and brought back into covenant relationship with the living God so that God has his people back now, not by coercion or force, but by us exercising our wills to say, I believe you. Remember, Adam and Eve said, we don't believe God. We're going we're to go this direction. Abraham said, I believe you, God. And now Jesus says to us, I died for you. I rose from the dead. I want you to be united with me. I want you in my covenant. And, and look, I've already done everything that's needed to break that covenant you have in being born into this dark world. That can be broken and you can come back into covenant with me. And by that, you come into relationship with God, union with Christ. And then Hebrews 7 um, makes, makes this powerful statement. It says, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant, okay? Better than the law, better than Abraham's covenant. And if anything, the extension of Abraham's covenant, fulfillment of it. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now, when it says they die, it's not talking about dying to ratify a covenant. It's talking about they die. And so it took a whole lot of priests. And it's saying, Jesus, remember Jesus is eternal. He's an eternal being. God, man. As a man, he died and conquered death and rose from the dead and now he lives forever. And when you and I come to him as the covenant human being, the covenant man, because he unites man and God, when we come to him, then we receive this life and union with him that will never end. And it goes on to say, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost, meaning as far as the eye can see, uh, forever, without fail, completely, totally, eternally. He'll save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, when it says make intercession for them, 
We use that uh, verse a lot to say, well, Jesus is in heaven praying for us right now. And uh, yeah, it doesn't surprise me to think that Jesus would be praying for us, but that's not what this means. Okay, what this means is that by his very existence in heaven, he intercedes for us. By the very fact that he is the God-man established in heaven, he's never going to be kicked out of heaven. His position in heaven is unshakable. Therefore, we are in union, in covenant with him. And so our lives are wrapped up in him. And that means that our position is totally, eternally, forever settled and secure in heaven. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. So just one more thing I want to say, and that is this. When we enter covenant with Jesus, we enter into his purpose for the world. That's, that was God's covenant with Abraham, purpose for the world. When we enter into covenant with Jesus, you know what he says to us? He said this. He said, hey, you know what? I'm going to make you a fisher man. You know what? We're going to change this world. You know what? We're going to fill this world with, with image bearers. And you know how we're going to do that? We're going to, we're going to send you all out into the world and we're going to make disciples of all people, of all the nations. That, that's what Jesus says. Listen, this is just being part of a follower of Christ. It's not like, oh, I'm gifted as an evangelist and, and this person is not gifted as an evangelist. So I'm just going to do this and you're going to do that. No, he said to everybody, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And so whatever, wherever we are in that, in our growth pattern is okay, just as long as we're willing to take the next step in our growth pattern in that, okay? And not just say, well, I'm okay where I am, because part of being in covenant with Jesus is accepting his purpose for the world and embracing his purpose for the world. Does, isn't that cool? Yeah, so it gives us purpose in life. All right, so um, Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much that you died for us. Thank you that you, you'd simply say, that if anyone receives you, they have the authority to become sons of God, daughters of God, come into this covenant relationship that you've established and sealed with your own blood. Thank you for that. Let, let, us, let us understand it more. And as we go into worship and our giving and everything, just let this, let this impact and permeate our thinking and change us. In Jesus' name, amen.